welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, through iTunes, through Podcast Addict, through Anchor.fm, and if you are watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click that subscribe button with the bell for continued notifications. Always appreciative of your presence here, viewing, listening. It means a lot to me. It means that this work is helpful and here we've kind of been looking at some work and what I always try to do is compliment um, is really compliment pulpit ministry with what I do on here or vice versa compliment the pulpit ministry with what's done on here I don't want it to be two, two separate things per se and honestly I don't have the time for them to be two separate things they have to relate so this is a ministry for Victory Baptist Church um, to be helpful to the saints there and hopefully helpful to anyone who's listening in. The Great Tradition released a video already looking at the term tradition in the Greek paradosis, looked at some Old Testament use of the root paradidomai. And um, what I want to do now is I want to move to the Great Tradition of the Apostles. I need to clarify something. The criticism is always, 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 seems to be always present that the great tradition is something other than, or, or it represents some other source aside from Scripture. Um, and what I think is happening here is a Roman Catholic doctrine of tradition being read into the conversation. And um, I think, the, I think there's also an assumption being made that all tradition must be Roman Catholicism's conception of tradition or else there's no tradition at all. It's either Rome's tradition or no tradition. And that's not biblical and it's it doesn't comport with historical experience. So what I want to do here is I want to say at the outset that when we're talking about the great tradition it's referring to that which has been revealed by God in his word, the articles of the faith of the Christian religion. It refers to that as it has been believed on and practiced throughout the history of Christianity. Now, you have to, you have to connect what the Bible says with Christian history. And the Bible makes plain statements concerning the estate of Christ's church going on into the future from the standpoint of the first century. For example, Matthew 16, where Jesus promises to build his church. If the claims about what Jesus will do to his church, Ephesians 5.25 through 27, for example, the sanctification of the bride, the washing of the bride, and so on, in preparation for the glorification of the bride in verse 27. If these claims are true, and they are, because this is God's holy and infallible word we're dealing with here, it therefore necessarily follows that an individual Christian living in the 21st century should be able to find himself, in terms of what he believes about what the Bible says, in Christian history. I should not have a totally different take 
on some of the most important passages in Scripture dealing with who God is, who Christ is, the incarnation of our Lord, his sufferings and his glories, than someone like Augustine living 5th century, right? If I come away with ideas that are completely contrary from the democracy of the dead over the last 2,000 years that has been amassed, then we've got some problems. And I can sit there and say all day long, I believe what the Bible says. Here's the Greek. I think I've got it. With my modernist assumptions, with my post-enlightenment assumptions, I think I've seen something that nobody else has seen before. That's a very dangerous place to be in. We all agree that the source of special revelation is the scriptures. Well, the source actually is God himself. He's the author. But the scriptures is that through which special revelation is communicated and nowhere else. Roman Catholicism doesn't believe that. Roman Catholicism does not believe that. All right. And so to identify this position with Roman Catholicism is, is just it's it's either ignorance or or just misrepresentation. So what I want to do here is I want to look at we looked at the we looked at the term tradition in the first installment of this episode. By the way, this is something that I'm going through with my church uh, on Wednesday night. So you can also find uh, a, a more kind of teaching version of this. It's not, you know, video like this where I'm sitting in front of a camera. And you can listen to it on Sermon Audio. So if you're interested in doing that, you can search either my name or my church, Victory Baptist Church, and you can listen on Sermon Audio too. Uh, a series that complements what I'm doing here on YouTube, and this YouTube video series is meant to complement what I'm doing there in the classroom at the church. So we looked at the word tradition. It's a translation, English translation, from the word paradosis. We looked at kind of a little bit of the etymology, looking at the Latin first. It, it just means something, instruction that is handed down. Um, and... So now, now what we need to do is we need to define the great tradition as apostolic tradition. Um, Thomas Manton has an excellent exposition of 2 Thessalonians 2.15, which is the text really that the series is, is built on. Um, and uh, he talks in there about the two kinds of traditions. He talks about human tradition and divine tradition. Human tradition can complement divine tradition, or it can be completely contrary to divine tradition. Think about uh, man-invented worship ordinances, right? That would be contrary to the Word of God, and so should be relinquished in terms of our belief and our belief system. Only God's Word should be allowed to form our worship practices. Regulative principle of worship, for example, which is our confessional conviction that worship must be revealed by God's word, and we don't go beyond it, and we hope and pray and plead the grace of God that we don't fall short of it, but we do. So there's human tradition that is complementary to God's word. Say, for example, sitting in pews, um, taking up offering through passing a plate or a box at the back. You know, these are all things that 
we've come up with according to the light of nature and what befits our particular congregations, and they constitute traditions. They are handed down from generation to generation, um, especially passing the offering plate, right? Uh, who hasn't grown up, you know, passing an offering plate or, or experiencing that if you did grow up in the church? Um, and so, you know, there are, there are man-made traditions that are good traditions and they befit God's revealed or divine tradition. But then there's divine tradition, which Manton defines as that which is either heavenly doctrine revealed by God in his holy word or practice revealed by God in his holy word. He, he says, traditions divine are either heavenly doctrines revealed by God or institutions and ordinances appointed by him for the use of the church. So, we're talking here not about man-made traditions. We're talking about divine traditions or apostolic tradition that was handed down by God to the apostles through inspiration. Um, and we call it the great tradition because it is great. If there, if there is an apostolic tradition, and this apostolic tradition has been carried forth from the first century onward to now, then it's a great tradition by definition can't call it apostolic tradition or divinely revealed tradition and not call it great. So hence the name, the great tradition. And so there should be no argument whether or not a great tradition exists. There's one spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. The question becomes, what is it? What is the great tradition? How do we discern it? Or who has the authority to discern it? So let's look a little bit further into 2 Thessalonians 2.15. I'll go there here on Logos. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. We have to note that this is instruction given to the church at Thessalonica. This is instruction given to the church uh, in Thessalonica in light of an epistle that has already been written, which is probably the epistle referenced in verse 15b. Hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. It's in the singular. It doesn't say epistles, so I don't think he's talking necessarily about the whole body of the New Testament, or at least what was there available of it in the first century. I think he's really referencing the epistle that came before, which was 1 Thessalonians. And so this is, this is instruction given to a local church, and it is timeless instruction given to a local church. This is not circumstantial language. It has meaning for us today. And so you see Paul there say, hold fast to the traditions. He's saying that to us as well. This is not just for the church at Thessalonica the commandment to stand fast, to persevere, and by means of holding the traditions, which is the means of standing fast, to stand fast and persevere, and to hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle, is a commandment, or two commandments really, stand fast and hold the traditions, are two commandments that apply to us today as Christians. These are not things that pass away with the passing of time. Um, if, if you're inclined to take that position, uh, I would just, I would want to point you to other passages where, you know, 
you would you would not want to take that position. Say with regard to gender roles, um, with regard to uh, the 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 qualifications for the office of elder or pastor. Um, you you wouldn't want to to just say, well, those those are time bound or contextually defined words from the Apostle Paul. If you're not willing to say that, I don't think you should be. I think I don't think they're time bound. They're not contextually determined words. They're timeless words for the Apostle Paul and, and, and are to endure for as long as the office of pastor endures, for example. Then we have to be consistent. We have to say, well, verse 15 here is not time bound either. It's not contextually defined. This is timeless instruction by the Apostle Paul delivered to the church at Thessalonica, nevertheless applicable to all of us. And there are two commands given. Stand fast, which is like, it's a military term, persevere, and hold the traditions. And the stand fast word there, stako in the Greek, it's always used to command standfastness in the New Testament. It's always used to command steadfastness in the faith, in the Lord, in the liberty of Christ, and so on. That's usually how the term is used. And then hold, as in hold the traditions, hold, krateo, it's the same term for like arrest, grasp, cling to, laying a hold of something. It's a clinging to, in this case, tradition, paradosis, apostolic tradition. And this apost- this is apostolic tradition that has been taught to the church by the apostles through revelation or through inspiration, we might say. And there, when, when, the, when the apostles there are, are living, there are two means by which this tradition was communicated. It was by word or by oratory, teaching, verbal teaching, or by epistle, that is writing. Today, that's not how the tradition is so much handed down to us. Today, the tradition is handed down to us, the scriptures alone, and the transmission, the faithful transmission of those scriptures throughout Christian history. That's right. Whenever you pick up your NAS, whenever you pick up your New King James Bible, whenever you pick up your King James Bible, there is an interpretive and translational tradition that those are working off of to give us the most accurate rendering of the Word of God in our common tongue. So that's the way in which this tradition perseveres, is in the Word of God as it's transmitted throughout the centuries, throughout these generations, these last 2,000 years worth of generational Christianity. So it's no longer spoken, passed down by way of oratory, unless you're talking about preaching or something like that. That is a way in which the tradition is handed down. It's preaching, but that's preaching the scriptures, right? Our preaching now is the scriptures, whereas the apostolic preaching uh, wouldn't be preaching the New Testament as it had been canonized already because it wasn't it didn't exist so they're they're preaching special revelation without the manuscripts of the new testament right so um that's just how it would have been that would have been the status quo of the first century in large part and and even following on after that to some extent and for some time um now when you get to rome's teaching and how rome would interact with this passage Rome would understand these, this word and epistle or the oratory, the teaching and the epistle as two separate sources of authoritative teaching or revelation. 
So word or message is the oral teaching of the church. It's not necessarily revealed in Scripture. So there's another source of other revelation, of other data required for the Christian life that would be seen as, as existing alongside Scripture, um, but is not itself Scripture. Uh, and that would be church tradition uh, that is largely decided on by the magisterium uh, throughout the centuries, and also church interpretive decisions. And what I mean by church interpretive decisions, I don't mean just the democracy of the dead. So when we're, t when we're talking about the great tradition and the, the uh, interpretation of Scripture throughout the last two millennia, we are checking the pulse of the democracy of the dead, whereas Rome is saying that, no, this is the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church as it's instantiated in and institutionalized by the magisterium. All right, so it wouldn't be a matter of 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 looking at the 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 whole of Christian history as far as we are able, consulting commentaries, creeds, and confessions to see if we're on the mark and kind of just checking our work so we're not men unto ourselves. It's not that, right? Because that doesn't say that well. There's one magisterium above it all determining what you think about these things. That's what Rome wants to do. Is it wants to it wants to institutionalize this to an extent that it says that we are in charge of interpretation, and and in in a sense, it's saying we are in charge of the meaning of Scripture itself. Whereas we say no, meaning comes from God, and so God is in charge of the meaning of the text, and it's God who most predominantly interprets his own text, or we might say that the only infallible of Holy Scripture is the Scripture itself. So when we're talking about the great tradition, we're not talking about an, an institution deciding what the Christian ought to believe based on its magisterial interpretation of the text. Uh, when we're talking about the great tradition, we're saying, okay, how, has, how have these passages regarding, for example, uh, the Trinity been interpreted by Christians throughout history. And we're not just looking, we're not looking at Roman Catholicism either. There may be Roman Catholic, like Thomas Aquinas, for example, or, uh, or um, uh, you know, um, Robert Grossetest or um, Wycliffe, or, you know, there might be men who existed within the Roman Catholic institution um, who yet make recourse to the scriptures and their and their their commentary is very helpful to us, um, but we're not making reference to Roman Catholicism and saying, look, their interpretation, which is which is exclusive to it as an institutional organism, is the right interpretation. That's not the quote unquote great tradition. The great the tradition is saying, well, no, God has given us a tradition in His Holy Word, inspired through the holy apostles and that is what has been passed down through the ages. That has what is what has been transmitted through translations in the Holy Scriptures or of the Holy Scriptures. That is what we're picking up on and, and we're asking ourselves as individual Bible interpreters and as churches who are preaching through whole books of the Bible, we're asking ourselves, are we out of step? Are we doing something completely different than what they did? Because we, we shouldn't right? If, if scripture is true and if scripture is, is, is accurate concerning 
the promises to the church that that namely Christ would 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 build it and that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it there should be a continuation of truth throughout the ages and and teachers generation after generation and pastors generation after generation teaching the truth of holy scripture and we can look at those guys and we can we can say okay what's your witness to the truth of holy scripture help help me out here um, that's 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 the great tradition the only other alternative to that is just to become your own pope it's just to become your own pope it's to sit at your dining room table or in your study and say look i have all Everything that the last, everything that the church has done over the last two thousand years, I have it all in myself. I don't need anybody else. I've got it all. What what it has, what it has taken Christ by His kind providence and voluntary, um, kind of gracefulness and and tarrying to some extent. 2,000 years, you're saying that you have that in yourself and thus are equipped to know the scriptures just as well as the last 2,000 years of Christian history knows it. That, that's what you'll have to say. And that's not biblical, and that's not humble. Not biblical, not humble. So Rome's teaching is that there are two, source of, two sources of revelatory authority, or at least there are two, two authorities that are co-equal or coordinate to one another. What's the East teach? There's Eastern Orthodoxy as well. And the East, Eastern Orthodox teach um, that they, have an, they, they do have an oral tradition, and it is preserved by conciliar theology. They don't believe in a magisterium. They believe in conciliar theology, which... Let me just pause here and say that there is legitimacy to conciliar theology. I mean, look at the Nicene Council or the Council at Nicaea, which is legitimate. Calvin writes about the legitimacy of conciliar interpretation of the scriptures that should be placed over and above the individualist interpretation because it's, I mean, you get a bunch of eyes on the same text. You get a bunch of spirit-filled men looking at the same text. Well, that's going to be better than one set of eyes. It's like a peer review. And so I'm not saying there's, you know, conciliar theology is useless. But what the East does is they make the councils um, basically another infallible source of authority. Uh, it's another infallible source of authority that doesn't just cohere with, it coexists alongside of the scriptures. And that is, and they, they believe in seven ecumenical councils. You know, the, they're not just looking at the first council of Nicaea, um, uh, Ephesus one, Constantinople one, or you know, and so on. They're they're looking at seven of these things that go all the way up to the eighth century, from 325 AD to 787 AD, somewhere thereabouts. And those councils are held either at Nicaea or they're held at, at Constantinople, and they're not ecumenical. Not all of them. Um, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, that was truly ecumenical. Um, you had a universal assent of pretty much all Christians living at the time, the truth of the Christian faith as it was represented in the Nicene Creed. You did not have that in 787 AD, right? You did not have that in the 8th century by any means. Um, and of course, then they have the written scriptures as their authority as well. Uh, modern Eastern Orthodox, by the way, are flirting with liberalism, thinking of, of David Hart or David Bentley Hart, who is 
I think at this point, a universalist. And he doesn't believe in the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, I think he grants the fact that there, or the fact that he grants the um, allegation that there are contradictions in God's Word and so on. So just odd um, compared to our uh, what we would believe as, as Western Protestants or as Western Baptists, particular Baptists. Um, so what's the Protestant teaching? And I think this is, this is if, you, if you have the volume that, uh, the volume set that Banner of Truth recently put out, the Thomas Manton reprint, it's fantastic. I think when it first came out, they, uh, they had it on sale for like $200, and I snatched it up, I bought it. And um, there's, this, um, uh, there's this great uh, series of sermons in there on Second, uh, Second Thessalonians 2 which I would encourage you to read. Even if you don't have the volumized set, look for it. Maybe it's online somewhere. But if, you wanna, if you're asking, what is the Protestant teaching, which is one and the same with the Baptist teaching on this point, if you're one of those who makes that <laughs> separation, we're, we're Baptists, we're not Protestants. Um, there's no distinction here uh, at this point. Um, the Protestant teaching is that these are when, when, when Paul's talking about word or epistle, he's, he's not talking about two sources of authority. He's talking about two distinct means of communicating <clears throat> uh, revelation from the same source. Um, and one of these means is, in a sense, gone. So no longer is the word of God transmitted orally. It's transmitted in writing. Um, it is transmitted orally, but only from the writing through the ordinance of preaching. All right, that's the only way in which it's communicated orally. So, what I want to say here at this point is that <coughs> as we look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15, there are a few things that, that we, need to, we need to summarize here and clarify. Paul's writing to a local church. He's writing, to, he's writing to a local church. He's writing to the church at Thessalonica. This is instruction that's timeless for us. It continues to apply. We are to hold the traditions which we have been taught. And in this case, we say we've been taught these traditions through the word of God, through the scriptures. All right. Now, that's the source of the tradition, the scriptures. The tradition has to be expounded upon. It has to be explained, right? And that, again, that's what preaching is for. So getting back to preaching and teaching. Christian history helps us to understand what this tradition is because Christian history shows us a testimony of the churches of Christians understanding of what this tradition is throughout the last 2,000 years. So that we have a chorus of saints and we can do our exegesis and our theologizing within that context or with the chorus of saints. I was um, texting some friends the other day, and I was saying, you know, it's interesting that 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 Craig Carter's book, Interpreting Scripture with a Great Tradition, has been has been associated with Roman Catholicism because it's the exact opposite of what Trent would allow for. The Council of Trent would allow for. Carter's book is being sold on bookshelves and on Amazon. The common reader can pick it up and learn how to interpret Scripture with the with the with the great tradition. So, number one, it is it is actually written for the layperson, 
It's not just written for the academic. If you read that book, you'll understand what I mean. It's written for the layperson, which assumes that the laity will be interpreting Scripture. That's not something that was granted by Trent. Um, the second thing is, is it's interpreting Scripture with the great tradition. It's not, uh, it's not, the title isn't um, subjecting oneself to the great tradition without question, uh, which would be uh, Tridentine Catholicism. Uh, it's not um, by faith blindly leap into this great tradition. No, it's it's reading and interpreting Scripture, but with your peers, with other Christians, other Christians past and present. There's a small. There's a uh, there's a small. Let's see. There's a small picture of this dynamic just in the local church. Nobody in the local church is 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 just a wild card unto themselves. They're not interpreting scripture by themselves. Not even the pastor is interpreting scripture by himself. He should be engaging the congregation, allowing discourse, allowing conversation between members of the conversation uh, of the congregation and himself. Um, we recently just had a Q and A Sunday. I, I try to sometimes give opportunity for for doctrinal conversation. To, to happen at a uh, at a corporate level so the church can kind of see what issues are together and work through those issues together. And so I think that's useful. And so knowing scripture is a local church exercise, right? Knowing scripture is something the local church does together. It does it together. And even when the pastor is preaching in the local church, the congregation has what? They have their Bibles usually open, reading with the pastor, taking notes, hopefully studying those notes later, and sometimes they come up with disagreements that they have with the pastor, and, and that fuels conversations. And so you're doing theology in concert with one another, and that's just a small picture of the function of all of Christian history. So when the pastor goes into his study and starts pulling commentaries, look, I've got, if I can align this, I've got Goodwin up here. You see Goodwin right there? I've got Bovink right there, right? And and then Witsius is over over here, and and Peter Martyr Vermigli. Um, so I'm, I'm not assuming that those guys have the knockdown, drag out answer to everything in Scripture and that their interpretation of, of Scripture is the end all be all, but they are like old friends that help, right? They are, they are witnesses to the truth of Scripture in their own right. Some things I think they get wrong, other things I think they get right, and we can, and, and there's a great deal of continuity between all of them on certain things doctrine of God, Trinity. Um, inseparable operations that exists in all of these guys. Um, and so one of the reasons why I think recourse to the great tradition is so important is because we can say, look, the modern effort to re-engineer the doctrine of the Trinity is not in step with what Christians have always believed. You go from Goodwin to Bavink. How many years do you have between those two? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. You have 300 years about between those two but guess what doctrine of god same in substance same they have their own little idiosyncrasies and their own little ways of phrasing things sure doctrine of god and substance same they're not tinkering with the trinity they are assuming nicene orthodoxy and they are doing theology accordingly 
Witsius, right up there. Same thing, especially when it does his commentary, two-volume commentary on the Apostles' Creed. But now we're being told, you have, you have this, this Christian witness behind us, right? And they're doing theology in a different way than the modern age is doing theology. But when you get back to them, 17th century, Bovink and some of the 19th and 20th century guys, yeah, it's, it's the modernism is starting to encroach, right? Um, I think this is even a, you know, Voss disagrees with, with Hodge. They were disagreeing with each other. And it's because uh, there were things that were speaking into their generation, good or bad, that, that were not necessarily problems for those who went before them. You get back to the 17th century, the century in which the, uh, the confessions were, were drawn up, uh, and there is no difference in the doctrine of God, uh, besides, again, some idiosyncrasies. Uh, some guys, you know, maybe had some, you know, like, for example, you get to Calvin, who was not a trained theologian. He was a trained attorney. His inter some of his interpretations uh, of certain passages regarding the doctrine of God are, are novel. They're innovative. Uh, some of his language on the doctrine of God, eternal generation, father is principle, and so on and so forth, um, novel, um, off, but you would expect that uh, from a trained attorney doing the best that he could do within the context in which he sat. But Calvin's view is the minority view on those things. And so, uh, again, it's very helpful for us as 21st century Christians affected by the Enlightenment to be able to reach back to the 17th century and say, what do these guys believe? And get help. I don't think that's, that's not Roman Catholic at all. That's not Roman Catholic at all. In fact, that according to Tridentine Catholicism, that would not be a task that any layperson would be admonished unto. It, it just wouldn't be. Right? So uh, this is something very different. This is something biblical. This is a tradition that's given to us in the pages of Scripture. And we're asking, okay, um, how have Christians understood it for the last 2,000 years? There should be a majority opinion when you look at the whole of Christian, uh, of Christian uh, history on the main things, on the first principles, and so on. And guess what? There is. There is. There is a democracy of the dead, and it's very helpful. You just think of the great tradition as the tradition that God has revealed through his word, and then also how the democracy of the dead has understood it as a witness to the truth of that tradition or the definition of that tradition. There you have your definition for the great tradition. What is the great tradition? It's apostolic tradition, as it's been inspired by God through the apostles, written down in the New Testament. And then you ask yourself, well, okay, got it. I'm reading my Bible. Um, how, have, how, has, how have the brothers who have gone before me understood these things? right? So anyway, hopefully that's helpful. We're already at 35 minutes. I think I'm going to go ahead and close it out there. Next time, what we're going to do, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to delve a little bit more into these two modes of communication, word and epistle. Um, we're going to ask, how does the great tradition persevere? Again, the great tradition is something that God has revealed in his word. We don't have the original manuscripts. So... We're going to look a little bit 
at the ecclesiastical text tradition, the majority text tradition, critical textual tradition, um, and how tradition is involved in each of those three approaches to the text. Necessarily so, because we don't have the autographs. Um, so there, it, there has to be a great, there has to be, look, there has to be transmission of the tradition. There has to be perseverance of this great tradition, right, um, throughout the centuries in, in one way or another. And we're going to look at some of those things. And then we'll, we'll look at some closing considerations. So then look for maybe one or two more of these videos. Um, anyway, God bless you guys. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Have a good one.